believe what's behind me here. It's a beautiful, still Arctic morning. And I've got a sleeping polar bear right here over my shoulder. I'm sitting in a small rubber zodiac in the European Arctic, just 600 miles from the North Pole. He's about 20 meters away from us in front of this iceberg. This is one of my favorite locations on Earth, Svalbard, Spitsbergen as some call it, a stunning archipelago in the high Arctic. If you take a look at a map, you'll see what I mean. It's up there. This guy is a, uh, a mature male in the prime of his life. My friend once said, if you sliced off the Swiss Alps, dropped them in the Arctic Ocean, and sprinkled polar bears on them, you'd have Svalbard. This bear I've been following is just the tip of the iceberg of what's happening up here. There's a delicate food chain that supports this massive carnivore. It begins with the smallest bits of algae, and then each layer is delicately stacked on top of the next until we reach the polar bear. This ecosystem is a real house of cards, and its health and structure all depends on one crucial item, frozen water. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Okay to fire? Yeah. I'm heading into European polar bear country and it's not to be taken lightly. Here in the settlement of Longyearbyen, the only proper town in the Norwegian sovereignty of Svalbard, guns are a very real need. In fact, it's illegal to leave the city limits without a firearm, because polar bears can be anywhere. Just bring the target back. Okay. So I'm here at the rifle range on day one. I have to renew my gun safety training certification. There's a circular target about 80 yards away propped up in the snow and I have to hit it with a high caliber bullet enough times to prove I'm capable of not just hitting a target and reloading fast but doing it when a bear is barreling down on me at 30 miles an hour. Polar bear, 35 meters. 30. The officer counts down the meters as the bear closes in. 25. It's not even real but it's still nerve-wracking as hell. Shoot, reload. Shoot, reload. I'm picturing a bear right there. Plus, I'm left-handed and this rifle's for right-handed people, so reloading quickly is a nightmare. I passed the test. Good thing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be allowed to leave town. Plus, my plan is to stay out of the food chain. It's one of the things I love most about polar bears. This species is top dog. And it would be my worst nightmare to have to kill a polar bear in self-defense. This is their place, not ours, and I've spent a lot of my life trying to help them. My Dutch friend, Rini van Muurs, is a legendary expedition leader here. So, good to see you. Good to see you too, Chris. Chris Morgan. It's been 13 years. It was Rennie who invited me back to Spitsbergen. He's been obsessed with the Arctic since he was a kid, and his energy is totally infectious. As a youngster, he knew he had to get to the Arctic one way or another, 
And eventually, I made it in 1989. I, I, I got myself a job on a small Dutch ship as a potato peeler. <laughs> you started as a potato peeler. I thought, I, I, I don't care how I get to learn or see the Arctic. I, yeah. I, I do anything. I told that captain. I said, but take me. And so off I went, five months. And we, we left the 13th of May, Holland, in 1989. And I came back with the same ship. And I was hooked. Sometimes I think that Rennie was born in the wrong century. I feel like he belongs back with other Dutch explorers like Willem Behrens, who officially discovered this place and its polar bears in 1596. And although Rennie's not a scientist, I don't know anyone who's spent more time around polar bears, or in the Arctic for that matter, and he's well respected for it. There are a few more creases in his face than when I last saw him. They come with the territory here. Rennie feels like he belongs here. And I thought, wow, what an environment. The birds, they notice you. You have to keep your distance, not to disturb them. The reindeer, they stop with grazing. They'll look at you. The walruses at the whole outsides, they sort of look up once in a while. And you're, they acknowledge you. They notice you. You are something you feel significant. You're, you're part of it. Shortly after that first season, I walked through Amsterdam. And I see thousands of people around me. Nobody looked at me. I was also, I felt also small, um, but also insignificant at the same time. Our home for the next 11 days is a French ship called the Polar Front. It's 180 feet long with a special reinforced hull to get us through the ice where it all happens. So we're pushing up against quite big chunks of ice here, small icebergs, and we're surrounded by giant ones as well. She used to be a Norwegian weather ship, so it's great, even in the gnarliest of sea conditions. Overnight, the captain has sailed the ship close to a huge glacier. It's at least a mile across. The 24 hours of daylight helps our nighttime travel. The sun has been above the horizon since April and won't go down below it until August. And then, just what we'd all been hoping for. Just got a call from the bridge. There's a polar bear on the shore. Gonna head out. See. Right on the ice outside, apparently. Wow. Wow, there he is. There he is. Our first polar bear of the trip. He's cruising the edge of the ice, and he's on a mission. We quickly launch the Zodiacs, these smaller inflatable boats, that let us cruise quietly close to the ice. There are giant icebergs 40 feet high all around us. Rini steers the Zodiac, wide at first, to see what the bear does. He definitely knows we're here, and we want that. No surprises. We have to read his behaviour. The bear is coming to the edge of the ice and just staring at the open water. It looks like an oil painting behind him, really dramatic grey and white skies. Suddenly, the bear stops walking. He's right on the edge of the ice, and he lies down. We've got a big sleeping bear right here. And this guy is so incredibly relaxed with us. We've been able to drift by just about 20 metres, 30 metres away from him. And he's barely even lifting his head. Raising his head now and then, he can smell every seal within a mile upwind. This guy is a, uh, a mature male in the prime of his life. He's not underweight, but he looks like he could... Uh, with a successful hunt but doing okay we spend an entire hour with him just 30 yards away and then just like that he gets up and leaves 
and I'm left wondering where he's headed. That's the sound of trapped air bubbles popping in an iceberg. There are hundreds of thousands of them, bursting as the salty seawater melts the freshwater ice. I sometimes joke, they're dinosaur farts being freed. They're not quite that old. But these air bubbles have been trapped in the ice of a mountain glacier for thousands of years, and now here they are, popping from thousands of icebergs bobbing around in the sea. But it doesn't take long before something else grabs my attention. I can see the spouts from some kind of whale about a hundred yards away. Oh, they're coming closer to us. We've killed the engine, which is sitting really quietly. And they're coming directly our way right now. This is unbelievable. These are belugas, white whales. There's one heading right towards us. Couldn't be more dead on in our direction. It's probably going to dive, though. Swim right underneath and come out the other side. Usually, they steer well clear of humans. Oh my god, right underneath, right underneath. Oh my god, he's right there. Oh, I can't believe that just happened. The whale is so close, I can almost reach out and touch it this white ghost right under our boat. I look around and there are dozens of them, pods of five or ten and, and probably sixty in total, the most I've ever seen. Given half a chance, a bear will grab a beluga whale from the water. That's a couple of thousand pounds of calories for a bear. All this life I'm seeing is only possible because of the ice. It's at the heart of everything here. I'm surrounded by it on all sides as I sit low in the water in the Zodiac. And this place has its own vocabulary around ice. Sea ice, glacial ice, multi-year ice, pack ice. It's no joke that northern Inuit cultures had dozens of names for snow and ice. For us, one of the most important types here is fast ice, the type we just watched the bear on. It's sea ice that's attached to the land, and seals and polar bears use it a lot. It's under the sea ice, like this, where the food chain here in the Arctic begins. Rini has a way of describing the food chain in a bit of a curious mad professor way. When sea ice freezes, it becomes colonised with, with, with sea ice algae. This sea ice algae is the base layer of this entire ecosystem. Everything else is built on this algae. Zooplankton, tiny animals, graze on that algae. And then zooplankton is in turn food for a fish known as the polar cod. So it's the most common fish in the Arctic uh, that, that, is, that is associated with sea ice. It lives near the ice, underneath the ice. And of course the seals, they feed on those little fish. So the zooplankton feed on the algae, then the fish feed on the zooplankton, and in the next step of the system, the seals feed on the polar cod. Seals also need the ice to give birth and molt. And the bears need that ice as a hunting platform. And the bears are hunting the seals. So in just five short steps, we've made it from algae 
to the polar bear at the top of the food chain. But if you take out just one of those pieces of the puzzle, it would all fall apart. This food web can feed millions of different animals and birds. The system is powerful, partly because of the 24 hours of daylight in the summer. It's, it's like a very explosive as soon as the sun appears above the horizon and it's short, but it's short and so powerful and so rich that millions of birds travel to the Arctic, thousands of animals, millions of seals, you name it. It's enough food for them to, uh, to give birth, raise their chicks or raise their young, uh, fatten up for the winter and migrate south. It's, and that all within, uh, now let's say, three months. It's kind of like an all-you-can-eat buffet but it closes in an hour. A few days later, our ship enters another deep fjord. This one feels different. Thousands of birds are circling in the sky and diving into the water. And then we see something, something in the water. I mean, he's within yards of it now. He's in the water. He's talking to Seal, and he's very close. You may want to hang back for a minute. Is he in the water or on ice? He's in the water, and the seal is on the ice. Okay. It's another bear, and he's doing something I've never seen before. It's in the water, swimming towards a seal in this like stealth mode it's called water stalking and they do it when they can't catch a seal from on the ice and it's rare to see he's very close he's coming up behind it he's just to the left of the seal now he's slightly different colour to the ice ok the seal I don't oh, he's just seen him the seal's just seen him oh holy the, the, oh he's there he's right there he just dove under it oh he missed it. Now the polar bear's head's up above the water. He's, he's clinging onto the edge of the ice. Did you see that? He dove right after him. That was so close. Wow. Because the bear was in the water, it was hard to get a good look at it. We weren't sure if it was a male or a female, but Rini had a suspicion it was a young, inexperienced bear. Normally, a bear would dive, you know, 10, 15 meters before, and he would even use some ice floes to, to hide behind and to get as close as possible to then dive, and then it would launch itself out of the water, try to grab the seal, sort of head on. Uh, but it didn't. It just kept swimming right at the, towards the bearded seal. Of course, he missed it. Sure enough, 20 minutes later, we can see it's a young female. The polar bear's now come out of the water and climbed up this cliff, scaling this cliff wall to try and find birds' eggs, and it's just absolutely remarkable watching her. Hauled herself out of the water and just went straight up this rock face. And now she's combing it left and right to see if she can find anything to eat. More often than not, the seal gets away, lives another day. Great for the seal, but not so much for the polar bear. Her switching to eat arctic turn eggs is definitely not ideal. But I guess we all have to eat cereal for dinner now and then. Rini has seen some big changes in the 30 years he's been coming here. The largest glaciers, the ice caps, are shrinking. The biggest ice cap here, the Ausfona, has receded miles back because... Um, I remember seeing a little rock appearing from underneath that glacier and now the front of that glacier has receded so far back away from that 
rock that appeared to be an island, ships can sail around now. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. A rock that was once covered by the glacier, now left behind by the retreating ice. I remember being here with Rini about 15 years ago and our Russian captain at the time wouldn't take the ship into one fjord because the marine charts, his 20-year-old paper maps, showed that it was still a glacier, it was still ice. There hadn't been a glacier there for years. It had melted and receded three miles back into the fjord since the charts were drawn up. But the captain still wouldn't chance it. Map show ice, ship not go there, I remember. It drove really nuts. We were both dying to get into the fjord to look for bears, but the captain wouldn't budge. The point is, it's an ever-changing place, and especially the ice that's at the heart of this ecosystem. But things don't always change at glacial speed. Since we started watching the bear on her hunt for eggs up the cliff, the ice behind us in the fjord has moved, blown offshore by the strong wind coming off the glacier. We just left the shore where we're watching the polar bear and uh, the ice has shifted. The wind that came across the glacier must have pushed all of this ice out and now we're trying to find our way around it because it's it's become disconnected from the land and it's only left a very narrow channel between, uh, between the land and the ship for us to find our way back. Our fellow guide, Rickard Berg, is driving the Zodiac and we all scan the fjord for a better route through the ice which is constantly moving. We have to get through before it blocks us in completely. Luke, the captain of the ship, radios Rickard. Yeah, go ahead, Luke. Did you find the fairway in the ice or are you ice trapped? Yeah, we are ice trapped for now, but we turn around and go the long route around, Luke. Okay, copy that. Struggling Struggling against the ice here. Not sure we'll be able to find a path through. We're actually pushing big slabs of it in front of the Zodiac. Now we're actually getting up onto the ice, but the ship is about oh, a kilometre away from us, but it feels further. As we try to circle around, I think about those early explorers that spent entire winters seriously trapped in this icy place. I can't even imagine. We dodge around the ice, zigzagging through some openings. It helps that Rickard's also in the Coast Guard. And we finally make it back to the ship. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This podcast is free, and it's accessible to everyone, thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Oh, I'm downwind of them now, and man, they stink. That's what an all-shellfish diet will do to you. Walrus. The biggest seals in the north. 
shuffling my feet in the gravel attracts them. A giant male swims up towards me. This big one is really close now. Oh my god, he's huge. We swam out of nowhere. This giant male is tucked to probably two feet long. And he popped up in the shallow water. So quietly, I had no idea he was there. He's right here now, about 12 feet away. He looks like a curious, mustachioed grandpa raising his head up out of the water. All that's missing is a pair of spectacles on the end of his nose. There's a group of them huddled together on the beach, maybe 40 or 50 of them. While I'm distracted watching them, my cover's blown. Arctic turns. Wow, that one scraped the top of my head. Oh, ouch! Didn't expect this actually. Trying to get a little closer to the water so I can hear them. And uh, walking right through a turn colony, and they're not happy about it. An attack from the sky. There are dozens of Arctic terns sitting on their camouflaged eggs right in the gravel and sand, and they are not happy I'm here. These terns are my favourite Arctic birds. They're gorgeous. Little black caps and bright orange bills, and feisty. They're so damn tough. Every year, they fly from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again. That's a migration of over 40,000 miles, and they can live to be 30 years old. The Arctic terns and other birds help other species in this ecosystem too. Some of the mountain slopes around me are greener than others. They really stand out in the grey and white, and birds are the reason why. Oh, I'm sitting in this mossy area covered in purple flowers, purple saxifrage, which is this Arctic plant. And the only reason that they're here is because of the droppings from the birds that you can hear above me in these cliffs nesting here. And these are black-legged kittiwakes, thousands of them in the sky. It's the most incredible sight. And they're making a real racket here. And their droppings enable the growth of all this plant life down below. And I'm sitting in the middle of it. It's incredible. Listen to these guys. There's fish fertilizer falling from the sky all around me. I'm lucky enough to dodge any direct hits from the birds. And on the ground right here, in the melting mud, are footprints. They're reindeer tracks. And they come here to graze on the lush plants on slopes that would otherwise be bare gravel and rock. Reindeer like these have been important for humans in Arctic regions for thousands of years. And for early explorers as well, reindeer coats, bedding and sleeping bags. They were the difference between life and death in the frigid temperatures. In 1910-12, during the Scots expedition in Antarctica, they were still using sleeping bags made out of reindeer skin. But there was always a difference of opinion among the crew members about how to use the reindeer sleeping bag. Should you use it with the, the fur side inside against your body or the other way around, the fur side on the outside, like, as, as, like the reindeer wears it, right? Serious stuff. 
Herbert Ponting, one of the crew members on that 1910 expedition, even wrote a poem about it that Rinnie likes to share. On the outside grows the fur side, on the inside grows the skin side. So the fur side is the outside and the skin side is the inside. As the skin side is the inside and the fur side is the outside, one side likes the skin side on the outside and the fur side on the inside. Others like the skin side on the inside and the fur side on the outside. As the fur side is the soft side and the skin side is the hard side. If you turn the skin side outside, thinking you will side with that side, then the fur side, soft side is inside, which some argue is the wrong side. If you turn the fur side outside, as you say, it grows on that side, then the skin side, hard side is next to your outside, which Comfort is not the right side, for the skin side is the cold side, and your outside is not your warm side, and two cold sides coming side by side are not right sides when side to side. If you decide to side with that side, then turn the outside, fur side, inside, and then the inside, skin side, outside. Beyond all question, inside, outside. I love Rinny's spirit. He would have fit right in back then. But his mission is in today's Arctic. The early explorers, Willem Berents and Robert Falcon Scott, might not recognise the place. There's a lot less ice since their days. But for me, returning to Svalbard after 13 years, the wonder of the place, at least, is still intact. But sometimes it's the invisible stuff that matters, like climate change itself. The media often, too often shows only the polar bear when they talk about we're losing Arctic sea ice and next moment you see the polar bear walk. And, ever, and it gives people who are not familiar with the sea ice ecosystem and uh, the impression that we lose only the polar bear, the icon of the Arctic, but it's a, whole, it's a whole ecosystem. The bears might be at the top, but it's the whole ecosystem that's at stake. Often when they see pictures of the Arctic and they don't see trees, and they think, wow, it's, it's a barren wasteland, but it's not. And that landscape, the landscape has this vast, this vast wilderness. It is, it, it, in some way, it's very simple, but subtle and strong. Simple, subtle and strong. This whole place is full of contrasts and ironies. The polar bears, the walrus... The Arctic terns and whales, they're all so tough and so perfectly tuned to their surroundings, the place where they've evolved to thrive. But that's part of the problem. If that world they have evolved in continues to change, none of them will survive. And even though it can seem like a distant place, way up here at the top of the world, what happens here in the Arctic affects us all. Our own future, tied so closely to this land of frozen water. We'll be sharing some of the photos and video from my trip to Svalbard. Check them out on our Instagram, at The Wild Pod. I'm really excited to be making our second season of The Wild. A big thanks goes out to you, our listener. We've had well over a million downloads of the podcast, and that's just amazing. But we still need your help to get word out. The more listeners we have, the more episodes we'll be able to produce. So if you're willing, think about two of your friends who love the outdoors and learning about wildlife and tell them about the wild. Encourage them to subscribe. It will really make a difference. Thanks.
On the next episode of The Wild, we'll go to the site of the largest dam removal in the history of the United States. That's crazy talk, man. Nobody goes there. Good things aren't ever easy. But man, we pulled it off. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. Check us out on our website, thewildpod.org. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Megan Farmer, Kara McDermott, Dyer Oxley, Tio Popescu, Mariah Powell, Brendan Sweeney, and Jeannie Yandel. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. Thanks, everyone. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.